Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. Technology training and education is providing a path forward for students, and One Place in Baltimore is helping lead the way. Andrew Coy is the director of the Digital Harbor Foundation and creator of its Tech Center. That Tech Center has been up and running for seven years and is making a difference in Baltimore and beyond. Andrew Coy, thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be here. So tell me, for people who don't know, what is the Digital Harbor Foundation Tech Center? Yeah, so the Tech Center is located in the former South Baltimore Rec Center, and it's a space for youth to go and explore and develop pathways into all sorts of opportunities, careers, or college uh, as they as they pursue interests in tech. Uh, they're learning things like computer science and maker, which involves digital fabrication, so 3D printing and laser cutting and all sorts of uh, computer-aided design drafting. It's a place for creativity and exploration, and it's in the after-school time space, right? So we're in after-school and mm-hmm. summertime, which just has a lot of freedom for the for the young people to explore things that they're interested in and that they have passion for. Mm-hmm. How did it all come about? You're in, is it year number seven? Yeah, we're, we're coming up here on our seventh anniversary in January, wow. which we're really excited about. Uh, you know, it's, it's a it's a great milestone to be at. But as you look back and say, how did we get to where we are? It really started when I was a classroom teacher just down the street. Mm-hmm. And and the rec centers were going through a, a period of evaluation. At that time, Stephanie Rollins-Blake was the mayor and had put together a plan where they were going to be focusing more energy on a few uh, a few rec centers or fewer rec centers. Mm-hmm. And the South Baltimore Rec Center was one that was outside of that area of focus, and they were slating it to shut down. As a classroom teacher, though, two blocks down the street, I was saying, hey, we need more opportunities for, for our students, for young people around the city. And this is one of those that if there's any way that we could keep it open, we should. And so somebody flipped the question on me and said, well, what would you do with it? <laughs> and, and I thought about it. I thought about it. And then I answered. I said, well, I would add all of these other components to it. Because if you look at the history of rec centers, they really play a really important role in, in the economic fabric of a, of a society and a community right here in Baltimore. So going back to the industrial economics that we had, factories needed physically fit people to work in them. Mm-hmm. And a rec center kind of helped with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, factories needed extended daycare options for second shifters, and a rec center helped with that. And in a pre-digital era, we needed, and actually I would argue we still need, a physical gathering place uh, for community to come together, and a rec center helped with that. So, you know, this is why you hear folks like now Mayor Jack Young say, I grew up in a rec center. Mm-hmm. And you hear, you know, so many people talk about that but the economics of it changed as the factories literally have been shut down, auctioned off, Bethlehem Steel and others. Mm-hmm. But the community need is still there. The shift, however, has been from the industrial to now a tech or, or knowledge-based workforce. So we need folks that are mentally fit, that have that that exercise, the creative muscles mm-hmm. and the processes. Um, you know, we need folks, we still still have folks that need second options for extended daycare. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's still a real need for so many sure. working parents. Um, we still have a need for a community gathering. But how do we do so in a tech-driven economy mm-hmm. is an underlying question that we've been sort of 
working on an answer to and, and working on uh, having a conversation about. Mm-hmm. When you first approached this seven years ago, you're going to, I'm assuming, funders, people um, trying to fund this. Did they get it? What kind of barriers, I think, did you face when you first started? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was something that that certain folks were like, okay, like, you know, this sounds interesting. Other folks were more direct. I remember the the first meeting I had sitting down with Bob Embry from the Able Foundation. Mm-hmm. I didn't make it too far into the conversation before I interrupted me and said, okay, what do you want from me? Uh, <laughs> and we then talked about it and he said, put application on my desk and they funded it, uh, you know, for us to start doing some of this work. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I remember and I, I don't think I had very much context for some of the conversations I was having. I didn't realize, you know, as I've been doing this now, I'm like, oh, like the fact that that these folks were sitting down with me and having this conversation was 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 no, I mean, it was our first or second month of being open and Don Weinberg was sitting there with Amy Gross, you know, and, and it was like, oh, wow. Like, uh, as I think back to, they came and looked at our space and looked at the ideas that we had around it really early on and then became supporters and have been longstanding, uh, you know, uh, uh, funders and advocates and and helped us think through certain aspects of the work that we do mm-hmm. uh, and we're we're incredibly grateful for those those individuals that just spent that time along the past seven years and that's partially what we're reflecting on uh, we have a a youth employment division where youth create uh, a little objects from the digital fabrication for clients. And we're doing these seven thank yous over the course of the year mm-hmm. that we'll be sending out different folks that, that sort of represent different parts uh, of the journey. And so we're excited about that. But all that to say, you know, when we first were getting started, I was running around telling everybody about this idea. And as I reflect back, I feel so grateful for everyone that spent the time to listen mm-hmm. and to give feedback and helped us mature as an organization and into an entity that's able to deliver and do the work that we are today. Mm-hmm. When you were first starting too, was it hard to get student buy-in or were they immediately interested? Uh, I mean, sure. Like, like Students need to know about what you're doing to mm-hmm. be bought into it, right? Like yeah. It's not like a, an automatic, you, you know, you turn on a faucet and students come out. Uh, you know, it's... <laughs> That'd be uh, nice. Well, I mean, but, but one of the things that we talk a lot about is is it's a pathway, not a pipeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a distinction. You often hear people talk about these like pipelines, and I say, well, there are people inside these things, right? Mm-hmm. And and people need autonomy and need to be able to make choices and have decisions. And pathways so much more accurately describe, I think, the visual that that uh, we should be striving for instead of just like a leaky pipeline that somebody fell out partway. Yeah, um, and wound up there. And wound up, yeah. It's like, how do we how do we craft on-ramps and entry points and and destigmatize certain aspects of, of either in, in our in our work, you know, not knowing about technology. A lot of times folks feel like they have to present themselves as knowing more than they do. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's like, oh, these kids, these know all these things. And it's like, well, we all need to be learning these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like they got a head start on learning them because you were around too when this technology was starting, right? Like it's, they haven't been around for any longer than you. In fact, it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. But how do we destigmatize some of that uh, fear of technology? Because it's uh, it is impacting society writ large. But all that to say that we've worked and we had to continue and we still do to this day have to continue to work to present the opportunity to youth and recruit them into the programs because we ask a lot from them. You know, we were at the very, very beginning a drop-in center uh, where kids would come in and, and they would do stuff, but we found that we were always working with the most recent arrival. Sure. But if you'd been there two or three times, it didn't mean that suddenly you were like, oh, I can do all this stuff on my own mm-hmm. and I don't need sort of support and, and guidance. 
And we said, hey, we we really should shift how we're doing this. And it was after we did a summer program with uh, Maker Education Initiative through AmeriCorps mm-hmm. that we we're like, what if we structured our school year programs more like a, just a really long, drawn out summer camp that had a cohort approach where students would start all together, would go through a 14 week experience. Uh, and so we ask a lot from them. We ask them to commit to 14 weeks of two days a week for mm-hmm. a couple hours each day that they're coming and learning a whole variety of things. So we know that that involves a process of commitment mm-hmm. and that involves recruiting and presenting and and doing those things around that. This program is presented by the Enoch Pratt Free Library, producer of the celebrated Writer's Live Speaker Series. Get up close and personal with the most notable authors of our time at the Pratt. Writers Live is a free program bringing best-selling authors who are shaping our culture to Baltimore. Learn more about Writers Live at prattlibrary.org. The Enoch Pratt Free Library. Your journey starts here. I want to go back to your background and how you got into this. I mean, you grew up, was it in Alaska, a little bit all over the place? I yeah. mean, how did you wind up teaching in Baltimore City? Sure, sure. So I'm a four-time college dropout. Uh, you know, I, I kept going and doing everything. I never let school get in the way of my education. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I finally did end up graduating, I was debating among options of what I wanted to go do. And I said, you know, I really want to make a different type of impact. I don't want to just go into work that is um, that that's for the money or for the you know, whatever other sort of attractions as a you know college senior looking to say, what am I going to do? Sure. And education was one that I just felt we have huge disparities uh, around in our country, mm-hmm. right? That if you don't think there's a, a education crisis or education problems going on, it's because you've been one that's probably had it really good. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. and so how do we tackle that problem? And as I think about in reflecting, you know, the difference between a career and a job, you know, a career is really the question you are trying to answer. Mm-hmm. And a job is how you're currently working on figuring out a part of that answer. Mm-hmm. And so... I pursued uh, Teach for America as an opportunity to become a teacher, mm-hmm. and Baltimore was my top choice. This is where I wanted to be, you know, for a couple of reasons. I, I knew one or two folks that were here. I knew a little bit about the program. I, it wasn't the biggest city, which I wasn't interested in, in like a New York or Chicago, sure. perhaps. But it was. It had so many different, you know, I mean, charms is is the you know <laughs> that I that I just said that's where I want to be, and I want to teach high school, and that's where I was placed, and and I showed up, and in the first week that I was here just some major sort of life connections happened. I mean, everything from like found a place to live because I was just staying with a friend for for a bit to mm-hmm. to met who I would later actually marry. Like, I mean, it's like that first week was, was sort of like a, quite the welcome to Baltimore <laughs> that I had no context or no clue that that was all, that all happened in that first week that I was here, mm-hmm. but really just fell in love and have stayed now for a decade with no plans to, to go anywhere uh, else mm-hmm. uh, from here. So that, that's a little bit of like me arriving to Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, I could talk about some of the wanderings that I've had uh, as I, I have spent time uh, working more nationally in sure. nature. But Yeah, I worked in the Obama White House. So yeah. tell me how that all came about and kind of how it impacts and influences your work today. Sure, sure. So... I never was like, and then I'll go work in the White House, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> I was a government teacher teaching about Obama as a teacher. And I remember one of the, I did a, a Donors Choose crowdfunding you know, campaign and actually mm-hmm. got his memoir for us to read in, in our class and all these different things. So I have, have just, you know, was, was so inspired by his push for also technology and, mm-hmm. and for STEM education. Mm-hmm. And as... Uh, and I'm trying to remember exactly how we got on their radar, but the work that we were doing at the Digital Harbor Foundation 
somehow ended up on somebody's radar. Mm -hmm. And I got a call one day and they were like, hey, we'd like to come take a look at some of the work that you're doing. And so Stephanie Santoso, who was was then at the the White House Office of Science Technology Policy, came and and met some of our youth and just talked. And it was a very sort of informal and and just sort of Mm -hmm. fact-finding. And then a couple of weeks later, she reached out and said, hey, we met this one young person there, uh, Darius, that we'd love to have come to an event that we're putting on. Uh, And so we sort of worked through that process. And he was presenter at the first White House Maker Fair that was in June 2014. And then youth kept getting invited to different things. So the White House Science Fairs, we had a couple of youth that had presented at those, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as other events. And I was the chaperone for a few of those. Other staff did as well. But I remember then being invited to a one-on-one meeting. It was the first time I'd ever had this one-on-one meeting. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. I had a list of things I made it about halfway through my seven items on my list of things. And they said, well, you know why we invited you here? And I said, no, no, no. But like, I don't know, but I have this list of these ideas. And they said, well, we want you to come join the team and work on these things here. And I was like, oh, that was not the conversation I thought I was coming for. Um, let me go talk to my team because the first thought I had was like, if it negatively impacts Digital Harbor, it's an absolute honor, but I didn't feel like I could mm-hmm. leave. And, you know, this was really early still in some of the work that we were doing. But the team in sort of a bittersweet moment was like, yeah, we're fine without you. Right. Which is <laughs> You're like, like, thanks, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, you know, then I, I served and it was an honor and a privilege and something that, um, yeah, was was as as you might imagine, and, and then more in lots of different ways mm-hmm. um, to be able to work on the team there in, at the White House and uh, and serve as a senior advisor on the tech and innovation team, mm-hmm. working to build grassroots community efforts uh, related to STEM education, to general technology innovation, uh, the maker movement, and, and a whole variety of other initiatives that I still continue to be involved with in different ways to this mm-hmm. day. Have you been able to see what you've created at Digital Harbor Foundation sort of recreated in other communities in similar ways based on what you guys did here? Yeah, so that's something that we're actively pursuing and working on. Mm -hmm. Uh, So thanks to some of the funding from uh, Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, we've actually been able to run a national design challenge where 14 communities around the country have been developing their plans to replicate aspects of our work. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that we're actively supporting and engaging with these communities including Baltimore City. So Baltimore City Rec and Parks has committed for six of their rec centers to have tech programs going on. And we're working to build the capacity and the training and support of those individuals, thanks to support from folks like the ABLE Foundation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so it's it's really looking at what is the national need and then how do we demonstrate what that looks like? And if you if you look at what's happening across the country, so after 2016 and, and then 2017, when I was uh, suddenly unemployed, um, looking around and saying, like, what is going on? What had happened? Mm-hmm. And I spent time traveling and traveled to 41 states. Wow. Uh, we, we did this epic road trip. We packed the kids in the car <laughs> and we did 20 national parks and we just went all over the place. But I spent a lot of time talking with people. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I observed over and over again is folks were frustrated with technology uh, in different aspects, right? The job uncertainties that it was was causing yeah. with job loss potential, or at least a lot of talk about that in mm-hmm. uh, in entire industries like autonomous vehicles and what that's going to do, mm-hmm. you know, as that continues to progress, or the cost of technology, or just this feeling of uncertainty, you know, with with uh, identity theft or hacking or all of these aspects that are just, you know, causing a lot of of frustrations or uncertainties. The negative externalities of technology are being felt by a lot of people. Sure. 
And I, I saw that, you know, unfortunately, the positive benefits are being felt by only a few, or, or at least like those that have access. The digital divide, um, in other words, is is real mm-hmm. and it's growing. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, the rate of advancement of technology has far outpaced the rate of dissemination. Mm-hmm. And the question that I kept asking as I saw this is like, why is this? And how do we do something at scale that addresses this? Mm-hmm. And the answer I kept coming back to is something that I'd worked on as a policy initiative with uh, Megan Smith, then U.S. Chief Technology Officer for, uh, in, the, in the White House, and other policy folks around the idea of uh, a tech extension. So I don't know if you're familiar with the cooperative extension or agriculture extension, but every single county in this country has extension offices mm-hmm. that are funded and supported through the the local land grant universities. Mm-hmm. You know, so University of Maryland Extension System here in Maryland, Cornell in New York. Uh, Utah State and Utah, like every state has one of these. And the law that was written to create those, it was 1905 is when it was written, Smith-Lever Act. And it was addressing the fact that we knew a lot more about farming than was available to farmers practicing farming. Hmm. And if you look at where we are today, we know a lot more about technology than is available to people using technology. Mm -hmm. But we don't have an equivalent infrastructure that can disseminate that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And things like 4-H and master gardening and the the ag uh, sciences that are available are so critical to our infrastructure and why we have the highest producing you know agriculture industry of, of any country, right? Mm-hmm. And yet we've also had examples of things like a dust bowl that completely... Um, wreaked havoc on people's lives, uh, livestock, jobs. And and I think we're facing what I would call a digital dust bowl Mm -hmm. right now where the same conditions of naturally occurring cycles uh, exacerbated by human activity are being replicated, but in a digital space Mm -hmm. and at a scale that far exceeds even what the really devastating uh, Great American Dust Bowl uh, had. Mm -hmm. And so how do we build the infrastructure that can respond to that? Mm -hmm. And this is where the work that we're doing is seeking to to develop out a model, but is is a small part of what needs to be a much larger solution Mm -hmm. and that should activate and involve and connect with all of the work that's going on in places like libraries and in community spaces across the country, because there's so much good work that is happening and that these things are being done, but they need to be supported formally in far greater numbers for us to address the the very real digital dust bowl that we're experiencing as a country. And and it goes beyond that, but, but specifically just thinking about how we're experiencing it it here. Mm -hmm. How vital is it to get young people really comfortable and immersed in technology at that young age? So maybe then, you know, 15, 20 years from now, they're not at that point where they're uncomfortable with it and, and, you know, scared of it. Yeah. So we talk a lot with our youth about learning how to learn and learning to love learning, Mm -hmm. because regardless of what we teach you, 50% of it is going to be obsolete. And I've heard somebody then quip and say, the problem is, though, we don't know which 50%. (laughs) Well, then you have to learn it all. Exactly. (laughs) But if you don't have that that love of learning and, and confidence in your ability to learn, then it, it, if you're freezing what knowledge you know at the time you completed your formal education, mm-hmm. um, that's insane, right? Like that is how are, are we going to be an agile or responsive society to these changing tech landscapes without increasing our comfort and our muscle memory, as it were, for learning, um, mm-hmm. you know? And, and this is where like libraries are this beautiful example of what that community learning space 
should look like mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the you know the the origination point is the individual coming in and looking for something mm-hmm. right um, and and unfortunately so much of the school the formal school system has has uh, shifted towards uh, forcing certain learning, uh, sure. and there's reasons why. Yeah. And, yeah, but at the end of the day, students are being told what to do, how to do, when to do it, and how they're going to be evaluated on mm-hmm. it. And then they're really glad they're done with that when they're finished. Mm-hmm. When I would love to see more young people really glad they have time to learn what they want to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that takes that's a muscle memory, right? That's something that you can either develop or not. Don't pay to download your favorite ebooks and e-audiobooks. You can do it for free at the Pratt Library. Access some of the most in-demand titles today. You can put away your credit card. All you need is a Pratt Library card. More information on how to access our e-library at prattlibrary.org. Yeah, it's interesting because we say, you know, we teach to a test score, right, in a lot of ways, but then you tell, there's all these messages of follow your passion. If you do something you're passionate about, you'll never work a day in your life, but you kind of don't teach how to get from one place to the other, right? Yeah, there's definitely a disconnect there. Mm -hmm. What is the third learning space, right, the third space, the the library, the community center, the rec center, the Mm -hmm. tech center? What role can that play in developing the uh, capacity, the interest, the awareness, for for all of us towards that end. Is that what you feel like has made the tech center so successful in that it is not a school class that they're being graded on? It's something that they really feel passionately about and want to be there. Absolutely. Right. And and that's something that you constantly have to develop and, and discover, you know, uh, because every time a, a new person walks in, they have to go through that process and that learning and, and sort of self-discovery. Mm-hmm. And it takes work. You know, it's not an easy, easy thing. And there's so many distractions, but it's worth it. Addic- learning is far more addictive than anything else mm-hmm. if you've actually experienced it, right? If you've actually sort of tapped into something that you care deeply about. So how do we sort of present opportunities for that to happen? Um, We can't control it. That's why we talk about that we foster creativity, learning, productivity, and community. But we've chosen that word because we feel like our role is in creating an environment in which that can grow, not in in sort of controlling or dictating it in some way. Mm -hmm. You know, and unfortunately... The formal system uh, has felt so much pressure to perform, and there's reasons for that, right? The national civil rights legislation that we have, or the national education legislation we have, is grounded in the civil rights because there were schools and and entire communities that were under-supported, under-resourced, and and we have had education disparity. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's reasons why it is that way, but I think this is where the informal space has a critical role to play, and we need to formally support informal learning uh, without it just becoming extended school day uh, option. You know, that, and that's what we've been advocating for, and looking for ways in which we could do that here in Maryland or across the country. Other communities could do similar type work. Mm-hmm. How are local tech companies? How have they reacted to this, and how have they helped support you? Yeah, so we've we feel really blessed that in Baltimore there are a lot of of tech uh, companies and they're active and supporting. So even just recently on Giving Tuesday, for example, uh, uh, Fearless and Smart Logic teamed up and said, "Hey, we're we're going to give," uh, and they gave up twenty thousand dollars to five different local uh, nonprofits uh, collectively that are doing work relating to uh, you know technology and STEM. So so folks like B three hundred and sixty or Code in the Schools or Digital Harbor Foundation, and that's just 
like one recent, like really recent example of companies that have have really stepped up. You know, it's work that that we've been supported at from Northrop Grumman or Crown Castle or others that are helping and investing in the you know, problem solving and the the STEM and the engineering that that goes on in our space. Mm-hmm. You know, so we we felt like there's been a lot of support and also just people spending time. You know, when we've done different hackathons in the past, we've we felt that the tech community has definitely shown up and mm-hmm. helped out and been a part of that. Um, there are a few folks that have come and gone, right? So we miss folks like Paris, uh, uh, folks know Paris Pittman um, that that have, have gone on, you know, in organizing some of that. Um, but there's a new folks that, that show up and do mm-hmm. great work and, you know, and whether it's what Delali is organizing with the, the Hack Baltimore or, or, or others, um, you know, we're excited about what the current and future for Baltimore Tech looks like. Mm -hmm. We're talking a lot about pathways, and college is sometimes an unattainable pathway for some students in Baltimore just because of the financial barriers. Are you creating sort of a new pathway or showing a new pathway towards the tech sector, and have you seen students that have taken that path? Yeah, so one thing I would love to absolutely see is more work-study where Mm -hmm. you combine those two a little bit. And instead of having to defer earning any money for, you know, the years you're going through college, a lot of companies, you know, can help you start in a role, but then as you progress and and develop and complete a college degree, then you can get raises and and, and grow. And and some of the companies will actually even pay for some of the tuition and other costs. So I would love to see that developed more. Uh A number of our youth have actually gotten full-ride scholarships as well, right? So two places like University of Maryland College Park or or RIT or Capital College or even one went on to Yale. Uh, You know, so students, and these are Baltimore City uh, public school students that are going on and doing these these wonderful things. A number of them have gone into workplace settings, right? Uh Where, Where that has been their pathway. And that's, you know, the important thing as we look at it is the love of learning and lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. Um, Because in the tech sector, a lot of it depends on what skill set you can demonstrate that you have and your portfolio of work, whether it's your your GitHub or other sort of code base that you can demonstrate is far more uh, valuable from the engineer technical review part of the equation when, when getting hired. Than, than having some uh, specific degree or, or just a general degree. Now, for HR folks, still there's a lot of boxes that need to be checked. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that we would love to see a little bit more uh, nuanced understanding of. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, so jobs are not um, artificially cut off from certain folks that could do those jobs, mm-hmm. um, but just aren't being considered for HR, you know, sort of processy reasons. Sure. Are people in the tech sector telling you, like, we have a shortage of people that can code, of people that can do this, and people do that, and then are you able to sort of translate those skills into the tech center? Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's one of the ways in which we develop out what we're going to be teaching and what we're going to be working on. You know, one of the things that I've observed generally in the tech sector is, is there is a lot of conversation about jobs that can't be filled. Some of those jobs, however, are much higher level. And one of the things that I think the tech companies are working on and need to work on more is how do they develop the capacity of their workforce to rise up to those vacant job positions Mm -hmm. and build that capacity to then open up more entry-level job positions for a new group of folks to come through. Um, That takes a lot of effort and Mm -hmm. a lot of time. And the sector has moved so quickly in the past. And it's always relied on this percentage of the population that are just cutting edge and going to get it and, and are out there exploring. 
And as a country, I think we've hit a tipping point in the past 20 years in which the 2% of population that naturally is autodidactic and is going to, to figure this stuff out, we have more jobs than can be filled by that small percent of the population. Mm-hmm. So if we don't build larger on-ramps, we won't fill those jobs, mm-hmm. uh, which is why you know efforts that, that we worked on back in the Obama administration, like Tech Hire and some of that work that is continuing on with Shift 7 that Megan Smith is, is leading, you know, is all about how how do we build more pathways mm-hmm. uh, into these opportunities? And the tech companies need to figure this out too, right? You look at other professional yeah. trades. Uh, they had apprenticeship and programs in which people would develop master skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't just relying on the formal education system to produce somebody that had everything you needed uh, that was higher ready. Um and so that's something that we need to expect and see and support companies that are doing that work mm-hmm. uh, more. And I feel like so much of it is about access. I mean, if you live in a certain neighborhood, you may have access to 3D printers or coding classes mm-hmm. and stuff like that, whereas you live in a different zip code, you're not going to see those on a regular basis. So it's the places like the tech center that are kind of like bridging that divide. Yeah, no, and it was interesting. It was a, a recent sort of social media uh, spat between some folks where, you know, there was some research that was coming out of MIT that was talking about how they were able to predict some of these things about future success with some genetics or some other types of things that they were looking at. And somebody's like, well, you can currently do that with a zip code. Yeah. You know, and and it really is about access. Mm-hmm. The, the tragedy is creativity is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. Mm-hmm. And so how do we how do we break that? You know, and and this is where rec centers, I think, exist in communities and are part of the fabric of communities that if we can invest in and support and build the capacity for rec centers and, and other spaces, libraries uh, in that mix, we will build access points and on-ramps uh, for more individuals um, whose talent and interest we need, right? Like we we are currently fielding only a small portion of the team on the field and, and wondering why we are struggling economically in, in the face of some other sort of uh, countries. It's like, well, we're, we are not benefiting from the capacity that we have and the diversity of, of viewpoint, um, you know, and and you see it in all sorts of things coming out from from Silicon Valley, for example, that that just don't even contemplate certain aspects yep. of society. Mm-hmm. It's because they don't have diverse teams, right? Mm-hmm. So much of uh, of artificial intelligence and the ability for cameras to to do facial recognition have lacked in the ability to to recognize different skin tones, mm-hmm. right? So if you're not, you know, uh, white, then you are not being picked up by this technology because they didn't have a man on the team to, like, say, hey, this isn't working. Yep. And that's a problem. And how many times are we doing that in lots of different aspects of mm-hmm. the tech world? And it needs to change. It, it needs more diverse teams and diverse perspectives and insights. And if we don't, then it's to our own detriment. Yeah, we only hear about those examples that are, like, glaring, right? Yeah. So is there a, a student success story or something that—it's uh, it, been seven years, so a lot of the kids that came through are adults now. Is there a success story that really sticks with you? Yeah, no, there's, there's a number of them, um, you know. And one young lady that, that I'll, I'll sort of focus in on for a second, I remember when she first came to the program— was there because her mom was like, hey, you should go to this program. Mm-hmm. Uh, her view <laughs> of technology... That's what most teenagers get, right? Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and she was a ninth grader at the time. And her view of technology, as she ex- described it to us, was, I don't want to sit behind an Excel spreadsheet all day. Mm-hmm. And we were like, well, well, 
yeah, I mean, yes, that's using a computer, but that's not what we, we mean by technology. Yeah. Um, but she had this perception of what technology was that was that was based off of sort of either, yeah, just sort of office work. And when she started to explore, she had a passion for photography and some other things, which she started to say like, hey, I can actually combine these things. And she had, one of her early projects she did was creating a lithogram, which was basically a photograph that she 3D printed with different thicknesses that if you put it, she created a light box behind it. And it was a, a photograph that was 3D printed, which was sort of this, this uh, interesting technique and approach that she had researched and found out and, and figure out how to do. But it combined these two different things. And she's like, oh, and then she created this, this project that utilized a broken piano that was left in the space when we inherited it and mm-hmm. turned it into a, a digital jukebox where the keys would interact with uh, some, uh, was a makey makey was what it was called. And then a Raspberry Pi and would pull a Spotify playlist, uh, you know, and play through speakers. So she realized that technology was a tool for interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and it completely changed her course, uh, you know, and she uh, just saw a message recently from her that she's just wrapped up, you know, the semester uh, uh, classes and is now on winter break, but she's in her junior year uh, at College Park on a full-ride scholarship studying computer science. Wow. Uh, and she's been working, f- you know, here locally in tech companies, you know, since she was a, a senior in high school and has co- consistently been coming back to some of those same ones and working with folks. And so it's like, you know, just found her way integrated into this this community and is, you know, finding a path forward for herself. And, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's that sort of, oh, there's this world of possibility and I can navigate that and there's a support from a community of, of folks that that are available to me to help me in that process. Um, but she has really just found her way and will continue to do so, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of work ahead of her. I, I know it's, it's like, but, you know, she's learned how to learn and learned to love learning and, mm-hmm. and she'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. What's your hope for the future of the Digital Harbor Foundation and the Tech Center? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. My hope is that we will continue to push the boundaries of what is possible and then find ways to link arms with with others to do that work um you know we are a small piece of a much larger puzzle, right? Mm-hmm. If you've studied things like collective impact and, and what frameworks go into supporting that, you know, there's different roles to play. And and we feel like we have a role to play. But first and foremost, we recognize that we are part of a much larger system. And we really feel the need to, to link arms with others to say like, hey, this is something that we all should work on together because we all are working on it. Um, but understanding what our different relationships are and what our shared measurement systems like, how do we know that we're having an impact? What's our common and collected agenda? You know, what's the backbone support organizations that are going into this? Um, how do we continuously communicate with each other? Like, these are the types of things that we need to be having a broader conversation. Because ultimately, what I want to see happen and what I want to see exist in the world is the creation of a tech extension mm-hmm. um, that adds to the, you know, the Maryland Extension System, uh, for example, and the other extension systems that exist out there, this important and critical component of accessible, community-facing, low-cost to no-cost technology opportunities that will teach you things that you need in order to navigate the current context we live in. You know, and if we don't do that, I'm fearful that the digital dust bowl will get worse, not better, mm-hmm. that we'll continue to have everything from disinformation to identity theft to, to hacking. And the problem with all of those is the solutions that 
there are known solutions to those things, mm-hmm. but they're not disseminated. They're, the, the, the people that need to know best practices for, you know, for safeguarding your own digital sort of space don't have a place to go to learn that. Mm-hmm. And so how do we as a, as a society respond to that is, as I, I think, the key question that we are trying to be uh, a positive part of. And so that's that's what I want to see us do. And, and I my hope is that in the next seven years, we'll reflect and see something that does exist across the country uh, that, that is part of a much larger uh, systemic solution set that, that we helped in some small way, um, but are a part of. Uh, part of. Mm-hmm. Andrew Coy, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Megan. Get help navigating the tech world with free computer classes at the Pratt. We've got something for all levels, from email basics to advanced Excel. Classes available at Pratt locations across Baltimore City. Details at prattlibrary.org. You're free to be more at the Pratt. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow The Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another free-to-be-more conversation. Thanks for listening.